And here we go. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Thursday morning uh, before I get ready to go to work. May 25th, 2017, coming to you from the downtown studios in rainy Brooklyn, New York. That, of course, was Suzanne Vega featuring DNA with Tom's Diner. A little shout-out to my friend Lisa Miguero with that tune. So, the Mets. We'll talk a lot about the Mets, the gift that keeps on giving. Terry Collins' absurd pitching bullpen decisions continue. And we'll talk a little bit about the NBA playoffs, specifically the Celtics and the Cavaliers. But we start with the Mets and last night's debacle against not the triple-A, not the double-A, the single-A San Diego Padres. The joke of a joke of a Major League Baseball team. This is a team with three Rule 5 players. It's, it's Teams sometimes don't even have one Rule 5 player on their roster. This team has three. Now, I understand there have been some success stories, Rule 5 guys. Dan Ugla is one that comes to mind. The all-or-nothing power-hitting second baseman for the Braves and the Marlins of recent vintage. But generally speaking, Rule 5 guys are five-year minor league free agents that if the team that controls their rights uh, lets them go, another team is allowed to take them in what they call the Rule 5 draft in the offseason – and that player then either has to make the major league roster or be given back to its to the previous to the previous team. So it's very rare that one guy from that's designated as a Rule Five makes a roster, let alone three. Right? The Padres are not even trying. Is is my point? They're not even trying. That team is awful in every way. They've got about two major league hitters in that whole lineup. Will Myers and maybe young Vervis or whatever the hell his name is, young Jervis, young Hervis Salarte, the former Yankee. He's a credible major league hitter. He's not a star by any stretch. He's okay. Will Myers, you know, is on his third team. He was supposed to be, you know, the next big thing with the Rays. Then he got traded to the Royals, or was it vice versa? I forget. And now he's with the Padres. Padres got him. He was an outfielder, corner outfielder. Padres, in their infinite wisdom, decided they were going to make him a center fielder, uh, even though he wasn't a particularly good corner outfielder. That was a complete bust. And now he plays first base for them. So, I mean, this is an organization that makes the Mets' decision-making look competent. Okay? Just to level set who the Padres are. And they have the worst record in Major League Baseball. I believe they are 16 games under 500. So the Padres are a joke. The Mets, obviously major issues. We talked about it last week. The manager, certainly a big one. A big one. And so, as a Mets fan, you looked at the schedule and you said... Well, we've got the Angels coming in who stink. We've got the Padres are coming in who are who are the worst, literally the worst team in Major League Baseball. Um, I forget who the Mets play after this series. 
Maybe, oh, it's the Pirates who have having struggles of their own. The point is, you looked at about the, the next 12 to 15 games and said, okay, you know, schedule makers finally been kind to the Mets. Maybe, you know, you go 10 and 5 in these next 15, God forbid, 11 and 4, and get back to 500, while supposedly some of the guys that are on the DL, like Cespedes, and Mats and Lugo, Travis Darno, who's actually off the DL already, shockingly, as Drupal Cabrera, those guys come back. Maybe Harvey continues to improve. Wheeler continues to improve. Although he's been pretty good, not great, but pretty good, all things considered, that it, you know, considering he hasn't pitched in two years. And you thought, okay. Take two out of three from the Angels. I mean, Mets have now shown a pattern. They win the first two games of a series against an inferior team and then tank the third game to take all good feeling out of the first two, which is exactly what happened this past weekend against the Angels. As Tommy Malone, who has no business being in the major leagues, let alone on the Mets roster, put them in a 5 nothing hole before even recorded an out. And I understand Rafael Montero had one really bad outing and the Mets have given him a few chances and he has not taken the bull by the horns and run with it. I get it. But at least he has stuff. He throws in the 90s. He has some stuff. Tommy Malone cannot get major league hitters out in the strike zone. If he throws the ball over the plate, it gets crushed. He's a soft-tossing lefty. And if he throws a strike, he gets killed. He's got to get people out with pitches out of the strike zone. And guess what? The whole world knows this. This is why the Brewers, who have no pitching, gave up on him about three weeks into the season. And yet this is who Sandy Alderson thinks is the answer. And now he's on the DL, which he should have just been released after that last game against the Angels on Sunday. But somehow the Mets are going to stick with him But anyway, you thought the Mets maybe have had a chance to climb back in this thing, get to around, you know, if they could get to the all-star break a few games over 500 and within shouting distance of either the division or wild card spot, you thought, okay, maybe maybe they could do it again and have, and have a second half run for the third year in a row because the luck has to change a little bit with the injuries. And if they could stay... Mostly healthy and with their key players, Cespedes. Maybe they get Familia back in August. Maybe they get Syndergaard back in August. And Cespedes is healthy and Conforto continues to play well. A lot of ifs. I get it. But that's what you're hoping for as a Mets fan. And, as, and if you're the Mets organization too, by the way. Where indeed hope is a strategy. But after last night's game, I'm done. I'm done. That's a wrap. I am done. You don't lose home games to the Padres when you're up 5-1 and expect to have any kind of a season. I am out. I'm done. I've had it. And, you know, listen. The bullpen, again, destroyed the game. But... This does not happen in a vacuum. The manager is the reason why. 
And to understand it, we need to go back to Monday night's game, which Terry Collins apparently doesn't understand, again, that there is cause and effect, that what you do in one game impacts the next game. He has no concept of this, apparently. So, in a game in which the Mets were leading 9-3 on Monday night, right? Now, Matt Harvey, not a very good job. Mets gave him a seven-run lead. He had to slog his way through five innings. Okay. Not good. 100 pitches or close to it, right? So, he did not do a good job. So, to be fair to Collins, he did have to go to the bullpen early there. Okay, But when the score got to 9-3, explain to me why Jerry Blevins, who was on pace for 100 appearances this year, only one other pitcher in the history of baseball, by the way, Mike Marshall, back when he was uh, a big young horse for the Dodgers in the 70s, made over 100 appearances out of the bullpen. Only one in the history of baseball. Jerry Blevins is on pace for 100-plus innings. Uh, Sorry, appearances. Why would you use him in a game in which you are leading in the eighth inning of a game where you're up 9-3. And then he uses Salas, so he uses Blevins to get two hitters in the eighth, Salas to get one, and then, incredibly, inexplicably, Collins, needlessly, Collins lets Salas pitch the ninth inning with a six-run lead. Who by Terry's own admission, has been completely overworked so far this year. I believe Salas is on pace for the second most appearances. So, in the game on Monday night that you have a six-run lead in the ninth inning, you've got this guy, Neil Ramirez, who the Mets just picked, picked up, who isn't any good. We understand that. But if there's ever a time, if the guy's on your roster, and if there's ever a time you're going to use him, that's the time! 9-3 in the, in, in the ninth inning. Six-run lead. Collins elects not to do that. He lets Salas pitch another full inning after getting an out in the eighth inning. So what does Terry do on Tuesday night? Well, let's start with the first idiotic decision, which is to pull Robert Kesselman, who, granted, has not been very good lately, not lately, all season as a starter. Had struggled. I get it. I understand. We all we all watch the games, Terry. We, we, we see. We understand. So the Mets have recently moved him into the bullpen where he'd had some mixed results. He had one outing where he wasn't particularly good. His last outing, two scoreless innings, he looked pretty good. And Gesellman, save for a little bit of a shaky fifth inning in which he gave up a couple of runs, had a 1-2-3 sixth inning, looked very good, the first run that the Padres got was a cheap run. So he had looked good. He had looked good all night. And again, the Padres barely resemble a major league roster. They have the worst lineup in baseball. It's not even close. Okay, So this is not exactly like they've got murderer's row coming up in the seventh inning. And Gesellman had only thrown 84 pitches. It's a no. And again, Terry, you idiotically used two of your more uh, valuable relievers in a six-run game the night before for no reason. No reason. Zero reason. None. So if you know this, how do you not let Gesellman pitch the seventh inning? 84 pitches, had pitched well, he had an easy one, two, three, sixth inning. And again, Collins announced after the game that Paul Sewald, 
who is certainly nobody's idea of a, a shutdown guy, but he's been pretty good. He's been a nice little surprise as a, as a bullpen guy for the Mets, who pitched the seventh inning the night before in his six-run lead, which also made no sense. He was not available, and Blevins was not available. Terry had already said, I'm giving those guys the night off because I've been overworking the bullpen. And Seawold, by the way, who is by trade a closer in the minor leagues, Terry has asked him to pitch multiple innings on multiple occasions this year too, which makes no sense because he's not used to doing that. He's not a long man, but, you know, and Terry has done the same thing with Robles too. And it's a wonder why he's getting, giving up rocket shots all over the place and now he's back in the minor leagues. I wonder why. There's no cause and effect there, right, Terry? Mm-hmm. It's all about command. Well, maybe his command stinks because his arm's about to fall off. So, anyway, so Terry elects not to uh, use, let Gesellman pitch the seventh inning. Right? Mets are leading 5 2 2 at this point in the game. Sorry, 5 3. It's 5 3. Gesellman pitched six innings, giving him three runs. First run was a cheapie. More poor fundamental play by the Mets that let the Padres pick up a cheap run early in the game. I mean, if ever there was a time to let a pitcher pitch seven innings, this was it. Because Selman has no injury issues either, so you can't use that as an excuse. He'd only thrown 84 pitches. He had an easy one, two, three, sixth inning, okay? Terry's answer after the game? Well, you know, this is a guy who's really struggled, and we wanted to get him out of there uh, on, you know, feeling good about himself. Okay. So this is fundamentally the problem with Terry Collins and the Mets organization as a whole. Every decision they make is fear-based. It's always fear-based. It's never, oh, you know what? This guy's doing great. Of course we're going to have him pitch the seventh inning. Oh, my God. But what happened? What would happen if he came out for the seventh and then he put a guy on? I'm going to have to bring Salas in anyway. Oh. Oh, my God. Or, you know, oh, what if his fragile psyche couldn't handle the fact that he was pitching well, but then he struggled in the seventh? I mean, it's ridiculous. They use the same nonsense with Harvey. It's the same idiotic reason why he won't uh, put Conforto in the three-hole where it belongs instead of batting leadoff. Because, oh, he's doing so well at leadoff now. Well, if I move him to third, then he might not be doing as well. Where every other good organization says, you know what, this guy's killing it at leadoff. Let's make him our third-place hitter because he's our third-place hitter of the future anyway. And Jose Reyes, if he's going to be on this team, needs to be hitting leadoff. Now, if you don't want Jose Reyes on the team anymore, then get rid of him. But to be batting him 7th or 8th or 6th or 2nd makes no sense. So this is the problem. This is the fundamental problem with Terry Collins. All of his decisions are fear-based. That's why he doesn't hit and run. Because instead of saying, you know what? If we hit and run, we stay out of the worst-case scenario. We stay out of a double play. Best-case scenario, we might have first and third and one out or nobody out. Instead, Terry's thinking is, oh, well, if we hit and run and the guy strikes out, then it's a strike him out, throw him out, double play. Everything is fear-based with this clown. Everything. So he inexplicably... Brings in Salas again. Guy who's been so overworked, it's ridiculous. Collins has even admitted it for the seventh inning. I couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. And he pinch hits Travis Darnell, by the way, for Gesellman, just off the DL, which will come back to haunt the Mets later in this game, as we'll get to later. For some of Terry's other idiotic decisions. Okay. So, there was no one on base. 
right? There's really no reason to, to let Jarno pinch hit there, right? You could have pinch hit Matt Reynolds. You could have pinch hit Pilecki, okay? You only still have a two-run lead here, and you know your bullpen is shaky. So, but yet Terry uses one of his best options with, I think, one out and nobody on to pinch hit for Gesellman. So he should have taken Gesellman out of the game anyway. So Salas comes in, gets the first two outs, then he gives up a seeing eye single, walks the next two guys. Now you can tell he's, he's dragging. His velocity is way down. He's, he's shot. So Collins, in his infinite wisdom, decides with the bases loaded and the Padres' best slash only major league hitter at coming to the plate in Will Myers, decides to bring in Neil Ramirez, the guy who Collins didn't think enough of the night before to pitch the ninth inning with a six-run lead. Now, on Tuesday night, Terry thinks it's wise to bring this scrub in with a uh, the bases loaded and the Mets clinging to a two-run lead. Explain that logic to me, please, Terry. And, you know, Joel Sherman had a nice little uh, cover article uh, providing cover for Terry today about how, oh, he's damned if he do, he's damned if he don't, the bad bullpen. And No, no, no. See, Joel, you need to go back to the night before's decisions to understand why last night was not, Terry was not a victim of circumstance. He put himself in this position. Because of the idiotic decisions he made the game before, and the game before that, and the, it all comes to a head. There is cause and effect. One game does have something to do with the next. Terry doesn't understand this, and that's the other thing. There's no consistency. He'll say one day he'll say, "Well, I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm just trying to win today." But then last night he takes Kasselman out because he's worried about tomorrow. Because he's worried about his fragile psyche, supposedly. And that's not a knock on Gazelman. I don't think Gazelman has a fragile psyche. I think he's, he'd be just fine. This is Terry's nonsense. This is Terry's issue with his fear-based decision-making. So he brings in this Ramirez guy, who, by the way, the day before he got released by the Giants, gave up a home run to who? Will Myers. When asked after the game, did Terry know that? The answer, no. Are you kidding me? Really, Terry, you didn't know that? Well, if you didn't, then goodbye. There's the door. Adios. In today's age of baseball, where more, too, probably too much for my liking, there's statistics are used and analytics and all this, and there's information everywhere. For him to not know that is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And that's the other thing. Terry will cherry pick certain data and statistics to buttress his points and his arguments. But then he doesn't know that the last time Ramirez faced this guy, which was, you know, like a month ago, not even, he gave up a home run to him. And again, wasn't good enough to pitch with a six-run lead in the ninth inning on Monday, but somehow is good enough now with the bases loaded in a two-run game. So what does he do? Second pitch, rocket shot, misses a grand slam by about two inches. You can ask AG. I was on the phone with him last night during the game, and I said, by the way, guarantee you first pitch home run. So I was close. Second pitch, 
barely missed being a Grand Slam, and because Will Myers is a clown, he preened and 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 primped himself at first base and didn't run hard. So instead of it being a bases clearing double because there were two outs, how the runner on first doesn't score, I have no idea. It's first well because the Padres are the Padres because there are they are almost as bad as the Mets are as far as running the bases, and they're a joke of an organization. As are the Mets, by the way, under Terry Collins' stewardship. So there's Myers at first base and the runner who was on first still stuck at third base. So so the Mets, by the skin, of, by the, the hair on their chinny-chin-chin, by the skin of their teeth, got dumb lucky and the game was still tied. So out goes Ramirez, in comes Josh Edgen, and Josh Edgen strikes out Ryan Schimpf, who, I'm sorry, I know the guy's got a lot of home runs. He's got 11 home runs. He's also got a million strikeouts. He's hitting 150. You, you just you, you, The things you're going to have to overcome to be good with a name like Ryan Schimpf, that, 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 that kid's got an uphill climb. Anyway, I digress. So awful, awful job of managing. Again, not just last night, but Monday night's decisions begat last night's decisions. And Joel Sherman wants to, you want to provide Terry with all the cover and excuses you want. Terry Collins did this to Terry Collins. And you can use the excuse that the Mets starters haven't gone deep enough into games all you want. Well, who's the one, who's the manager pulling them out of these games? Listen, I understand some of it's been performance-based. Okay? But there was that game against the Marlins early in the year where Jacob deGrom was cruising, cruising, and Collins pulled him out of the game, and the Mets bullpen, of course, ended up blowing it. Because he'd reached 100 pitches. Because in Terry Collins' world, every 100 pitches are, 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 are equal. A 100-pitch game where you're cruising along, and you strike out like 9 out of the last 11 batters, and you, stru- and you, gotten, you retired like 14 in a row, that's apparently the same to Terry Collins as a 100-pitch game where you know, you've got men on base every inning, and you're grinding just to, to make it through 5 or 6 innings. Apparently those are the same thing. Yeah. How about instead of looking at pitch counts, you trust what your damn eyes tell you you're seeing? So, now the game is tied last night. Terry Collins, of course the Mets don't do anything in the bottom half of of the inning. Seventh inning, offensively. In comes Josh Smoker to pitch the eighth inning in a tie game. Now, Josh Smoker is a big power lefty who, you know, strikes out guys, also walks the world, and also gives up home runs. As he did the night before, gave up a home run to a lefty, None other than the aforementioned Mr. Schimpf. So, Collins thinks it's wise to let him pitch to a righty to start the inning. Oh, and by the way, also, a little side note, because the great Tommy Malone is now on the disabled list, uh, it looks like Josh Smoker is going to be the emergency starter for the Mets on Saturday. Mm Mm-hmm. Although they may get lucky because it looks like this game is going to get rained out tonight. And they could probably push everybody back a day. Um, but we'll see. I, I don't know if the Mets are actually smart enough to figure that out. So I shouldn't assume that. Um, or maybe they do. Maybe the rain's going to clear up later tonight. They're going to get in, the game in. But uh, I digress. So Josh Smoker, right now, as of right now, as it stands right now, or as it stood last night, more importantly, was going to pitch on Saturday. 
And yet Terry Collins is bringing him in in a tie game in the eighth inning to pitch a full inning. And this is a guy who has a good fastball, struggles with his off-speed pitches, but his fastball is his bread and butter. What does he do? First three pitches, all off-speed pitches. 2-0, he throws a change. Gets behind 3-0. Throws a fastball right down the middle on 3-1. Guy takes it. Throws another fastball right down. I mean, 3-0. Throws another fastball right down the middle on 3-1. Guy crushes it. Crush is it. Second deck left field. That's a bomb at City Field. Mets down 6-5. Josh Smoker, ladies and gentlemen. Just, just back from AAA in a tie game. In a game you have to win. Okay, the Mets don't get throwaway games when you're 6 or 5 games under 500. And you're playing the worst Biggest joke of a team in Major League Baseball, maybe the last 10 years, in the San Diego Padres. You can't give this game away. I mean, you can, and the Mets did, but you shouldn't. So, then the Mets come back up in uh, the bottom of the eighth. He gets through the inning, 6-5. Juan Lagares leads off. Hits a line drive to right field. Right fielder drops the ball. Lagar's on second base. Start the inning. Up comes T.J. Rivera. T.J. Rivera is a singles hitter. T.J. Rivera has no speed. T.J. Rivera doesn't walk. Um, But Terry Collins loves T.J. Rivera, and he's a nice story. He's a local kid from the Bronx who was undrafted and almost got cut from his high school team and blah, 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 blah. And what a lovely, wonderful story for T.J. Rivera. T.J. Rivera has no idea how to play Major League Baseball. He has no idea how to situationally hit. The only, only thing on T.J. Rivera's mind last night when he was at the plate should have been get the runner over to second, hit a ground ball to the right side of the field, or hit a fly ball to the right uh, to right field in the outfield or right center field. That should have been the only thing on his mind. But he's a hacker. He's up there hacking T.J. Rivera. Guys should be thanking, and I'm sure he does, thanks his lucky stars that he's in Major League Baseball. So what does he do? First pitch, takes a fastball right down the middle. Would have been a perfect pitch to inside out and just hit a nice, easy ground ball to second base. Get the runner over to third. What does he do? Second pitch, hanging curveball, pulls it, lazy fly ball to left field, doesn't get the runner over to third. Now, I don't want to pick on T.J. Rivera. He's he, he's a, he's a you know he's a complimentary player, you know he he's been a, a nice story. I understand. He's just a sim, he's just symbolic of the the larger issue with this team, one one of many, which is the complete lack of situational baseball, of awareness, of fundamentals. And again, this has been a problem under Terry Collins since the day he got here. Okay, and I am tired of it being ignored by the media, even by the guys in the booth, who I love. I love, believe me, I love Ronnie and Gary and Keith, but this is ridiculous. Even in last night's game, Michael Conforto, who I love, we all love him, leads off the game with a hard single off the pitcher's ankle, gets balked to second base. Jose Reyes is up. It's a soft line drive to the first baseman. Conforto gets doubled off second base and wasn't even close. I mean, how does that happen? How do you get doubled off second base on a line drive hit to the right side of the infield? I mean, it's baseball 101. You stay on second till the ball gets through the infield, if it's be it a ground ball or a line drive, 
And then you go to third. And then you pick up your third base coach and see if he's going to send you home. Now, in that instance, if it had gone through in the first inning of a game, probably not. You're probably just going to go to third base. And you have first and third and nobody out in your third place hitter coming up. He got doubled off second base. It wasn't like it was close, like he scrambled back where the first baseman made. No, he had his head down and somewhere else, by the way, another body part, clearly, and it wasn't even close. It's, it's unacceptable. And yes, he should know that, but how should he know that if it's never taught? And then Gary Cohen, rightfully so, starts bemoaning that base running all over Major League Baseball is as worse as is, is the bad as the worst it's ever been. But he didn't hammer Conforto. He was he was alluding to the fact that in the first inning, Will Myers, while on second base and two outs, and their fourth place hitter up with a two-o count, tried to steal third base and, and was out by five feet which is also idiotic. I mean, think about this. The Mets lost the game last night to the Padres. That's bad enough. In a game in which the Padres starter couldn't last four innings, they had a runner thrown out of third base trying to steal third base with two outs. Their pitchers committed two balks. They uh, walked two guys um, and gave up a single in the ninth to load the bases with nobody outs. With nobody outs. With nobody out. Dropped a fly ball in right field. I mean, uh, had their infield in inexplicably in the ninth inning with the bases loaded and nobody. I mean, uh, an upper run. It, it's, it's astounding that the Mets lost to this team. Only Terry Collins. So then in the ninth inning, as I just said, Neil Walker leads off with a soft single to the left. Pitcher walks the next two hitters, including Lucas Duda. He's the second batter. He walks... Um, sorry, doesn't walk the next two. Lucas Duda walks to get on uh, first base. Now, Terry Collins knows he's going to have Curtis Granderson coming up in this, or his spot in the lineup is coming up in this inning. Now, Curtis Granderson is a disaster. He's hitting 150. He's got the worst OPS, the worst batting average, the worst slugging percentage. He's literally the worst offensive player in Major League Baseball right now, statistically speaking. Now, I understand he's got a track record, and he's a great guy, and I I get all that. Curtis Granderson should not be on the Mets right now. He's he's terrible. Okay, He's a great guy. I get it. He's a horror show. So, and the guy who's on the mound for the uh, Marlins, Mr. Hand, Brad Hand, uh, Curtis Granderson, I believe, was two for 14 lifetime with seven strikeouts against the guy. Okay? Now, that's a little nugget of information, Terry, that should have been readily available available to you. I know you didn't know that Neil Ramirez gave up a home run the day, bef- the day before he got cut by the Giants to Will Myers, who you idiotically brought him into face in this game earlier. I understand you didn't know that because that wasn't available to you. But I'm pretty sure Collins knows that Curtis Granderson has no shot against Brad Hand. I mean, Curtis Granderson has no shot against almost anybody right now, but particularly a left-handed pitcher and this left-handed pitcher, as his career numbers would tell you. So you know you know, you probably don't want Curtis Granderson coming up here to face this guy in a big spot. 
So you need to put up a right-handed hitter. You have two options. You have Matt Reynolds and you have Kevin Ploiecki. Kevin Ploiecki is a horror show. Why he's still on the team now that Darno is back, I have no idea. But in any event, what does Terry Collins do? He pinch runs Matt Reynolds for Lucas Duda. And of course, he'd tell you, well, you know, Lucas doesn't run well. That's the winning run. I I needed a guy that could run there. Uh Uh-huh. That's great, Terry. Except for the fact that (laughs) you can't. You can't. Take your only right-handed hitting pinch hit option and pinch run him there. You just can't do it. So what happens? Wilmer Flores hits a single to left, load the bases. Up comes Granderson, strikes out on four pitches. He, he had no shot. I mean, no shot. Takes takes two curveballs right over the middle for the first two strikes. Then takes a pitch low and outside and swings at a pitch in the dirt for strike three. Awful. Just awful. So that's out number one. Now Renee Rivera comes up, who has been a nice story in the fact, in the sense that you know he, he's a career two eighteen hitter and he's hit around three hundred so far this year and had an eleven game hit streak and blah 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 blah. He's Renee Rivera is back to being Renee Rivera. He strikes out uh, on a pitch, you know, four feet in the dirt. So and then now up comes Juan Lagares, fly out to right field, game over. Thanks, Terry. Well done. And maybe, by the way, the, the fact that Ploiecki is still on a team is the idiotic reason. Idiotic reason is that uh, because the Mets inexplicably have their AAA team located in Las Vegas and they couldn't get anybody here in time. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, we, I, I, we've talked about this too on the show. How do you have a team in New York who's the major league team, have their AAA affiliate affiliate in Las Vegas. How does that make any sense on any level? You can't really, you can't accurately uh, evaluate your hitters because it's a hitter's park and a hitter's league. Can't evaluate, accurately evaluate your pitchers because of the same reasons. Oh, and it's 3,000 miles away. So if you need somebody in an emergency, you're more than likely not going to be able to get them. Or if you do, they're going to be so dog tired because they're going to be on a, they're going to be on a plane all night. Ridiculous. Only the Mets. Only the Mets would have their AAA affiliate in Las Vegas. Makes a ton of sense. So, again, you know, Steve Gelbs, the field reporter for SNY, with his idiotic questions in these post-game press conferences, again, loving, loves to provide cover for Terry. I mean, boy, the media around here, they love them some Terry Collins. And I get it. Listen, he's he's a, he's a guy you want to root for. He's a baseball lifer, and you know he went from being a hard ass and, and and a real you know pain in the neck and a curmudgeon to now he really changed his tune and all that. And he's very upfront and honest with the media. I get it. I get you want to root for the guy personally, but you know what? Can you please point out the facts? These are facts. This is not an opinion by me. These are facts. These are ridiculous decisions the guy makes. You think I want to be mad at Terry Collins after every Met game? No. He's just a terrible in-game manager, always has been. I mean, you add the the fact that he's bad strategically, and then you also add the fact that the Mets are a terrible team fundamentally, both on the bases and in the field, 
What much? What else is there to recommend the guy? Oh, he keeps it. He kept the ship from sinking last year. Okay, I'll even buy that. The players like him. They supposedly play hard for him. I don't. I don't see a, a lot of grit and hustle from this team. It's okay. I mean, they don't dog it necessarily, but they don't give you extra effort. They wouldn't know how. I mean, there's not much to recommend for him. Listen, the Mets, we say this all the time. Unless they hit home runs and get good pitching, they have no shot to win. None. And you saw it in the World Series against the Royals, didn't you? The Mets boxed about a million plays in that series, didn't hit hardly any home runs, and they lost the series. And every game was a tight game. From the first pitch of the first inning of the first game where Cespedes played a single into an inside-the-park home run to Duda throwing the ball away at home plate when he should have had a guy out by five feet that ended up being the winning run of the World Series. And everything, all the other nonsense in between. I mean, this has been going on for a while, folks. This is not new. The Mets are a horrible fundamental baseball team. Horrible. And have been ever since Terry Collins showed up. And it's never addressed. It's never spoken about. So there's Steve Gelbs last night with his first question in the postgame. Terry, how hard is it to, to, to figure out some of these bullpen decisions? I mean, are you kidding me? What kind of a question is that? Now listen, this is part of the problem. He works for the Mets network, SNY, and he's got to have access to Terry every day. So he's not going to piss Terry off by asking him a real question or a hard question. It's a joke. I mean, the Mets are, it's, it's really, it's astounding. And now, by the way, their latest um, solution to their myriad injury problems is to not, now Terry's not allowed to provide updates on injuries. He was all salty before the game yesterday because he's now been given essentially a gag order by, by the, the, the team brass. By, by, by the brain trust, the sage Sandy Alderson. And now he's not allowed to really give updates. So they asked him, when Cespedes coming? I don't know. What about Cabrera? I'm not sure. How about uh, Matt? Nah, 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 I don't know. Lugo? Nah, 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 nah. It's like the Martians from uh, Mars Attacks. That's Terry Collins. <laughs> And listen, I get it. Terry's a nice guy. I understand that. Again, I, I, I get, I get the, the instinct to want to root for the guy. I, I understand. I, I want to root for him too. He's, a, he's the manager of my, of, of the, my favorite baseball team. I, I get it. Again, I, I wish he was better. I wish I, I, he had a philosophy that, that matched mine with how to manage a team. I wish he was aggressive. I wish he didn't make all his decisions based on fear. I wish he didn't baby guys. It's a lot of things. But at some point you have to just see what you see, trust what you see, and then tell it like it is. It's not that hard. Apparently it is though. But why why the newspaper guys have such a tough time Criticizing him makes no sense. I understand why Steve Gelbs can't ask a hard question. Because he's got to be around Terry every day. And the newspaper guys do to a certain extent. But, I mean, they're there in the postgame presser after they stuff their faces 
for the free buffet, and then they go home and go about their day and their night and their lives. Gelbs works for the, 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 the team-owned network. It's a different, it's a different animal. I mean, uh, it's. It, 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 I mean, again, it, the, the, these things should not be that hard. They really shouldn't. The Mets make it way harder on themselves. Cons makes it way harder on himself than it needs to be. And you can say, "Oh, it's a state of baseball, whatever." Okay, so what? You have to you have to succumb to stupid groupthink, then. You can't go out on your own and do what you want to do? Oh, because everybody else is doing it, then we have to too. Everybody else babies their pitchers and only lets it pitch six innings. So we, I mean, it's ridiculous. Come on. Enough. And again, Gary Cohn, who I love, lamenting the state of poor base running around all Major League Baseball. That's fine, Gary. The Mets are the poster child for that. So just say that. I mean, at least Ronnie said, you know, I don't know if Conforto got confused by the broken bat or what, but you know what? What I would say to him is that that's just a terrible base running play, son. I mean, thank you, Ronnie, for fu- one voice of reason. I wish Keith would, would, would have been doing that game last night. He would, have, he would have been moaning and groaning, boy. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with some NBA right after this. back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports, coming back out of the break with some Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill. Figure that's apropos because, boy, rooting for the Mets will drive you nuts. All right. Back with some NBA, Cavs, Celtics. So uh, just curious to all my my Celtic uh, friends out there, my Celtic fan friends. Uh, where are the uh, have the Celtics decided on where they're going to host their moral victory parade yet? <laughs> I mean, listen, I understand you got all excited after getting embarrassed two games in a row on your home court, including Game Two by forty four points. Um, that they they fought back from being down sixteen at the half and twenty in the third quarter, and it looked like that game was going to be blowout as well. And they came back and, and won the game in Cleveland uh, to make the series 2-1. to one. But um, everybody, let's just pump the brakes a little bit here, shall we? I mean, the overreaction by the media to one game in a playoff series is ridiculous. Um, it's it just, it, it, it's insane. And I mean, I think it's just a function of, of of the state of sports media now where, you know, you've got, and I love Tony and, and, and Will Bond, but shows like PTI and around the horn. And I mean, there's so many shows out there. They have to, they need, they need material. They have to have stuff to talk about. So it's, Ooh, are the Celtics back in the series now? Ooh, really? I mean, have you guys watched, did you watch the series? They lost by 44 at home and 20-something that they did in game one. The game with 44 wasn't even that close. 
And the game that the Celtics won, it took a ridiculous effort from Marcus Smart. A game, I can I guarantee you Marcus Smart will never have a game like that again in his life. Like the game he had against the Cavaliers the other night. 7 for 10 from 3. This is a guy that can't make 50, 40% of his shots from 2. He'd be 7 for 10 from 3 with for 27 points. Now look, Marcus Smart's a nice player. Okay, He may improve his outside shooting as his career goes on. Okay, I'm not saying he's a bad player. He's okay. He, he's a classic guy. If he's on your team, you love him. If he's not, you hate him. He's a hack. He's a grinder. You know, he, he's overly physical. He, there's nothing pretty about his game. He has hardly any athleticism. I mean, there's not much to like about Marcus Smart's game unless you're a Celtics fan. But he's the kind of guy every, every team should have. I'll give him that. A guy plays hard. He's a big guard. You know, kind of does a little bit of everything. But shooting is certainly not his forte. Okay. So the fact that he was 7 for 10 from 3 was a huge anomaly. Let's just start with that. Okay. So we'll start with the fact that Marcus Smart had the game of his life. They needed The Celtics needed that, number one. Number two, LeBron James had probably the worst playoff game of his life. Right, when he scored 13 points or 11 points on 4 for 13 or something. He had a horrible game. Terrible game. Now, Love and, I, and, and Kyrie Irving had great games for the most part. So that's why the Cavs were able to build a big lead. But LeBron had a horrible game. There was no, a no-show in the fourth quarter. Very un-LeBron-like. So it took that. It took the Cavs basically taking their foot off the gas in the third quarter, which you can you can forgive them that, based on the way the first two games went, where the Celtics rolled over. Okay, this this wonderful story franchise with their great history and the playoffs. Yeah, where was all that in Game One and Game Two when you were getting bl- your doors blown off by forty four points? So the Cavs did basically took their foot off the gas. And then, despite all that, the game is still tied with a few seconds left. And you need a shot from Avery, Avery Bradley, a three that went in, that literally rolled around the rim, bounced around the rim four times before it went in. The friendliest bounce in the history of the playoffs. So let's recap. One otherworldly game from Marcus Smart that you're never going to see again. Two, stinkeroo by LeBron that you're never going to see again, most likely. Three, Cavs took their foot off the gas, understandable, given that they had just blown the Celtics out by 44 points on their home floor the game before. And then four, a shot from Avery Bradley that basically did everything but go out and then somehow went in. And now all of a sudden the Celtics are back in the series? Really? Well, thankfully, as I said to my buddy Mike, who's a huge Celtics fan, all you did was poke the bear. That's all you did. And now, to be fair, the Cavs came out sluggish in Game 4. Did not look very good. LeBron somehow picked up four fouls in the first half. I thought a couple of them were questionable. A couple of them were legit. Um... And then Kyrie Irving decided to go off in the third quarter. The Celtics had no answer for him. And then LeBron said, you're not getting a terrible fourth quarter out of me two games in a row. 
and went off. So he finished with 34. Irving had 43, I think, something like that. Uh, Kevin Love, 17 points, 17 rebounds. And the Cavs won game four going away. And yet all you read about and all you heard about was kudos to the Celtics for, for battling back and being scrappy. Are we giving them orange slices too now and cookies? Are we giving the Celtics a nice participation trophy now? Again, where 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 are we where where, where are we going to have we at Copley Square? Is that where the moral victory parade is going to be held for this storied franchise with all their their twenty six championships or whatever it is? I don't even know how many it is. I mean, please, enough already. So here we are. Heading inexorably to a three-match, if you will, between the Cavs and the Warriors. The Warriors took care of their business, swept the Spurs, no surprise there. I mean, again, it was going to be a tall order for San Antonio to make that a series, but, you know, it looked like they were. Game one, up 20, third quarter, until Ka- uh, Kawhi Leonard went down. And then they basically just held them out the rest of the series. You know, I think Pop kind of saw the writing on the wall there. I don't blame him. You know, you don't want to uh, damage a guy and have him be banged up going into next year in a series you're probably not going to win anyway. But I think with a healthy Kawhi Leonard, they may they may have at least given the Cavaliers some resistance, maybe a six-game series. So now we're going to have Cavs, Warriors, and, you know, I did a show, I don't know, about six months, six months, six weeks ago, maybe. And the theme was, you know, NBA's got a competitive balance problem. And then, of course, right after I said that, you know, the, the Cavaliers went on a little bit of a swoon. The Celtics went on a hot streak. Celtics ended up being the, the, the first, you know, the number one overall, the number one seed overall in the East. Um... The NBA's got a competitive balance problem. I mean, these playoffs have largely lacked any drama. They've been very, they have not carried a lot of interest. And, you know, the Celtics-Wizards series was okay. Um, you know, Houston-San Antonio series was kind of okay until James Harden decided to lay an egg and mail it in in Game 6 on their home floor to try to force a Game 7, which was a strange performance from him. Um, so, you know, here we are again, third year in a row, Golden State and the Cavs, uh, you know, I mean, the Cavaliers basically proving that the, the regular season is, 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 is largely meaningless. I mean, they, again, they, they were not grinding to try to get the number one seed. You know, they thought it wiser and rightfully so it would appear to rest their players throughout the course of the year and everybody gets all upset and throws their hands up in the air and, and you know, the commissioner's got to do something about this and, and maybe that's the case. Look, if I actually went to an NBA game and I paid good money and I was, the, the, the you know, the team, you know, for instance, if it was, if I cared enough to go watch LeBron in person, which I don't, but if I did, I mean, I've seen him play in person. It's fine. I mean, you know, I got my fill. Uh, but I don't go to any live sporting events anymore, so I'm probably not a great example. But uh, if I did, 
And I bought, you know, a paid 150 bucks, which would probably give me a crappy seat, by the way, at Madison Square Garden. But if I paid 150 bucks, if I was a father and I had a family of four, and it cost me a grand, probably, which was probably what it would cost you to go, because you wanted to bring your kids to go see LeBron James, and then, you know, they rested him that night, you'd be pretty pissed off. I understand. I get it. It's a problem. They got to figure out something something there. I, I, I get it. Um... But, again, and LeBron said this, you, you want him in the regular season or you want him now in the playoffs? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. You know, LeBron has been playing for a long time. What is this, 14 years, 12 years, 14 years? You know, his body takes a pounding. And it's not just him. I mean, a lot of these guys. So, you know, it's, it's 82 games, a lot of games. You know, again, does it make you make sense to have LeBron playing, you know, in the mid-February against the Bucks in Milwaukee on the second night of a back-to-back? No. Because you probably beat them without him anyway, and even if you don't, who cares? Not a big deal. So, yeah, look, the NBA needs to figure something out with that. And the competitive balance issue, I mean, you know, look, that's something the league can do. You know, you need better GMs in basketball to make better decisions. You need a little luck, certainly. But that certainly plays into it. And the Knicks have none. And they have a terrible GM slash president who doesn't know what the hell he's doing. Um, And so, you know... Until LeBron decides it's time to pack it up or go, you know, try to orchestrate uh, a, a team where he can go play with Chris Bosh, uh, not, not Chris Bosh, sorry, uh, Chris Paul and Carmelo and, uh, you know, maybe Dwayne Wade until that time where he retires. Sorry, East. And I look, I understand the Celtics are all excited because they get the number one overall number one pick now. And by all accounts, it's probably going to be this kid, Markel Fultz the point guard from Washington, who everybody swears by and says is great. Okay, I haven't seen him play. Plays for the University of Washington. They're not any good, and they play on the West Coast, so I never saw him play. Um, but everybody says he's good. My buddy Mike, he's a big Celtics fan, big basketball guy. He's watched him, tells me he's good. I take his word for it. Guy's a good eye for talent. Um, you know, so, listen, I, that's great. I, I mean, I think... The Celtics need other things, too. I mean, their best player is the point guard. But, uh, yeah. Until that time, Cavs aren't going anywhere, folks. And neither is Golden State. I mean, Golden State has Durant, Curry, Thompson, and Draymond Green. I mean, those are probably four of the top 20 players, certainly in the West, and maybe in the league. I mean... You know, and no, no disrespect to Steve Kerr. I like Steve Kerr very much. I think he's a good coach. And I think he's a very thoughtful person uh, on matters outside of basketball. But, I mean, he hasn't coached in the playoffs. And they haven't missed a beat. Now, their level of competition hasn't been great, granted. But they haven't missed a beat. I mean, and Mike Brown has filled in for him. And Mike Brown, former LeBron uh, water boy. <laughs> it's not nice. Uh, a former head coach with the Cavaliers, twice, by the way. So it's not like they have, you know, some novice 
who's filling in for Mike Brown, you know, has some accomplishments of his own as a former head coach in the league. Um, but, you know, I mean, my, my point is that Golden State team is, is pretty stacked. So they're not going anywhere anytime soon either. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Peace out.